to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Sure, sure. <laughs> Very good morning to you. How are you? Welcome to church. Awesome, awesome. Great you showed up. As Con Spencer mentioned, you know, we are on a brand new sermon series called... Thank you, six of you. Thank you so much. Look at this beautiful, lovely graphics. Uh, live together. And so um, we're going to get started on that. But um, you know, before, before I get into the word, I want to begin with a confession. You know, this is a series on community, on... Uh, us experiencing life together, on us deepening our roots in community, and us becoming uh, the community of God, family of God that uh, is so envisioned, uh, that Jesus so envisioned for us. It's all through uh, the library of scripture. I, I thought there's no better way to start off um, a series on community with a heartfelt confession. Are you ready for my confession? Yeah. Well, um, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, watched a Korean drama, and I liked it. And, and, and I liked it. And uh, I liked it so much that I was done with it in about two or three days. And you, you know, these, these, these things, they, they, do, they do drag on. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's more time uh, dedicated than I have hoped for. Um, it was this Korean drama called The Last Empress. I don't know how many of you have watched it, but I don't know what I was doing. I was like really deep in the bowels on Netflix. I was just like scrolling. Scrolling down, I was like, what an interesting title, Last Empress. And so I watched the first five minutes. I was like, this is dumb. And then uh, I was 50 episodes in after that. Um, and so, yeah, it's like a fictional thing on like some career. I don't know how many of you have seen it. None? Just me? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, and so I watched it. I was done. Uh, for the most part, I regret it. But it's pretty good, pretty good plot points. And so I was like, man, these Korean dramas, man, there's, there's something about them. You know, it's like... Oh ma, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, it's, it's so addictive, right? And uh, I don't know how many of you, uh, you know, participate in a drug that is Netflix, but uh, after you are done watching a TV show, uh, Netflix has this, like, brilliant function that goes like, hey, you, you watch that, right? You might like this, you know? And so all of a sudden, Netflix was like, you like Korean dramas, right? Andre, these are all the dramas you need to watch. These are all the dramas that's missing from your life. And they were like, you need to watch Crash Landing on You. And so this thing keeps like, pop- hey, calm down. <laughs> Crash Landing on You, Crash Landing on You. It's like, Andre, you would like Crash Landing on You. And so I watched the first couple of episodes, and it was right. I did. Like, I do like Crash Landing on You. <laughs> Don't spoil it for me. I'm only two episodes in. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> you know, I... How many of you like that function? Yeah, you know, it, it puts up stuff like, hey, because you watch that, then you know you probably like these things, you know, and uh, Netflix just has a way through algorithm and through whatever have you that Netflix knows you. Sometimes Netflix knows you better than other people know you, right? And it feels so good to be known in such a deep way. It's like, man, Netflix, you know my inner thoughts and my desires and my dysfunctions and uh, and, and all that all that good stuff. But all that to say, right, that, that feeling of being known is something that we all crave for, yeah. Yeah, that feeling of being known for interest, for likes. But uh, I think on a deeper level, whether you are familiar with it or not, uh, your soul craves to be known on such a deep level, beyond such a surface level, to be known for your dreams, your aspirations, your desires, but also to be known for um, 
secret stuff, you know, things that you struggle with, sins that you have participated in. Your soul, whether you know it or not, craves to be known beyond the surface, beyond what Korean dramas are like. But it's, it desires to be known in such a deep, deep way, right? And it's in that knowing that we truly experience freedom, right? You know, where we experience that truth, where we experience vulnerability and authenticity, when we participate in the ancient practice of confession, that's where freedom happens. And we long to be known like that. And my hope is through this series, as we talk about community over the next six or seven weeks, that we will, through our practice, through teaching, through taking this back into our communities that we have built what I would call sanctuaries of trust, that we will see small little sanctuaries of trust being built up all through our community where people can be known in a deep personal way and experience the freedom that's been promised in scripture, amen? And that's the goal for this series, Life Together, for us to do life together well, to do community well, and for people to experience abundant life. Now this uh, topic uh, and this title, Life Together, seems very PG, seems very nice and fluffy, but actually it's really, really like gritty, right? You know, this, this title, Life Together, actually uh, comes from uh, a book title named, well, Life Together. It's written, written by uh, the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know whether you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but Bonhoeffer was a pastor theologian, but also a clandestine spy and martyr all at the same time. And so I have gotten a pastor thing down, but spy is what I hope to eventually grow up into. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't know whether you're familiar with what I have his picture up. And this is Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer is actually a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. He got his PhD at the tender age of 21. What were you doing at 21 years old? I was playing Maple Story, but he got his PhD. That is Bonhoeffer, right? And so Bonhoeffer, right, was, was a pastor and theologian in the time of the Third Reich. He lived in Nazi Germany. And he was so disillusioned by the condition of the German church that he started a resistance movement called the Confessing Church, confessing that Christ is the Lord of the church, not Hitler. And this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer started this clandestine seminary of about uh, anywhere from 50 to 100 people. And he, he, he stated this, that the people accepted this seminary are people who will actually take the gospel seriously. And so he started this underground, clandestine, subversive seminary of about 50 to 100 pastors to train them in the gospel, to train them in ministry, to train them in subverting the culture. That is the third right. And that was Bonhoeffer. And it was in this small little seminary, underground, this experience of communal living, where they lived together, breathed together, read scripture together, and grew together, that he wrote the book, Life Together. And I would recommend that you pick up that book. It's a small read, but it's an amazing read. And uh, there's this story that goes, uh, one of Bonhoeffer's relatives came, uh, actually, you know, came to visit him uh, in the seminary. And uh, the relative's uh, objective was to try to convince Bonhoeffer to drop whatever he was doing and go into hiding. You know, um, he had like the Gestapo's attention and many people knew what he was doing and he was subverting and, and he was in a really dangerous and uh, you know, it's in all sorts of predicaments. And so his relative traveled and met with Bonhoeffer and was trying to convince him, hey, Bonhoeffer, like, drop what you're doing, go into hiding, like, this is not worth your time, your effort at all. And so Bonhoeffer um, takes his relative, you know, they, they paddle on a boat and they uh, ascended the hill and on the top of the hill, he was just standing with his relative, his relative on one end and Bonhoeffer on the other. And uh, on the other side of the hill was... 
uh, Bonhoeffer's uh, seminary, right? The seminary that I just talked about, and it was in a place called Finkelwald. And so they could see the seminary in the distance. And on the other side of the hill was a Nazi training camp. And in that camp, the, the story notes that you, they, they noted uh, troops coming out of the camp, uh, batches by batches. They noted planes flying out, tanks. They could see what Hitler was doing, training men and even boys to propagate the propaganda of the Third Reich. And so on one end, it, it was Finkelwald, that seminary where he was training a small group of pastors to subvert the culture narrative. And then on the other end was Hitler doing almost the exact same thing, right? Propagating whatever narrative he had. And Bonhoeffer, in a moment of prophetic contrast, says to his relative, as he points to his seminary, and says this, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. And it's in that same vein of prophetic contrast that I am in a way convicted that there must be something so different, so distinct, so compelling about the Christian community that we can say that this is stronger than that. Community is not just an exclusive Christian concept. We see communities all around us. But I'm convicted, burdened almost, with this sense in, in me as I read through scriptures that there must be something distinct. And I would even go fur further to say compelling about the way we do life together. That the world would go, hey, I, I, I want a part of that. I need that in my life. And my hope is through this series that we will unravel... Uh, you know, Jesus' vision for our community, for us doing life together. Does this sound good? Yeah. All right. And so it's with that we'll begin week one of our sermon series, Life Together. And we'll begin with a passage of scripture in Acts chapter 2. But before we do that, can we pray as we begin? Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together. And Lord, we thank you uh, that we get to gather in a manner like this, that we get to come together, we get to worship them. Lift your name on high in a place of religious freedom. God, we don't take this privilege lightly. And our hearts are also burdened at the same time, even as we express our freedom uh, for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in places of persecution. And God, we ask that even as we sit here in first world comforts, hear from the scripture, sing songs of praise and gratitude, that our hearts will be filled with that same gratitude. Uh, for the privileges that we have, for the excesses that we have, for all the good things that we have in life. And Lord, we recognize that every good gift comes from you. And so our hearts are filled with gratitude even as we look at your scriptures this morning. And God, we thank you that uh, in this moment, even as we dive into your word, that this is not just an a exercise where we expound and exegete an archaic piece of literature, but in this moment we are experiencing you. Your words are life. So God, we pray even as we read from scripture today that God, we will experience your presence, your life flowing through our veins. God, we thank you for this moment in time. We give you all the praise and glory. In your name we pray. Amen, amen. Well, uh, the sociologist Rodney Stark, who wrote the book The Rise of Christianity and the Triumph of Christianity, notes that the growth of the early church is arguably the most remarkable sociological movement in all of human history. 
And the numbers are staggering, right? In about AD 40, there were roughly 1,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. But by AD 350, there was a staggering 30 million people who professed faith in Christ. A remarkable 53% of the Roman population had converted to the Christian faith. In his book, The Triumph of Christianity, Rodney wrote, he, uh, about Jesus, that he was a teacher, a miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than 700. How was it possible, he asked, for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world. And when you take a step back and observe who Jesus chose to build and found his church, it seems even more implausible, right? The disciples were mostly untrained men who failed as often as they tried. Story of my life. People, P- Peter kept returning to fish, fishing. James and John wanted to call on fire on the very people Jesus came to save. I haven't done that yet. Thomas doubted and Judas betrayed. A very ragtag bunch of improbable men. And the early church... Its leaders didn't have things that we consider now essential for our faith. They didn't have official church buildings, fancy vision statements, core values printed on sheets of paper. They didn't have social media. They didn't have a handsome celebrity, celebrity pastor who wears Nikes. They didn't have live stream services, things that we consider essential to our faith today. They didn't have any of that. They didn't even have the completed New Testament. Yet, the church grew in a remarkable way. And all this raises really significant questions, doesn't it? How could a Jewish political rebel crucified on a Roman cross become the savior of the empire that killed him? What on earth could have compelled more than half an empire to convert? What brought them to their knees? What did the early church do? And how did they reach the empire that crucified the Messiah? They did it through love. Love for God, love for the other, and also love for each other. And it's with that that we read this very familiar passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 2. Now, this is the go-to passage of Scripture when you talk about community, doesn't it, right? You can't have a series of community without referencing this passage of scripture and for many reasons and rightly so because this I believe is the vision for what a faith community can be and is to be on the earth even as we model the love of Christ in our love for one another like that verse goes they will know that you are my disciples by your love in your love for one another so Acts chapter 2 verse 42 are you ready awesome goes like this they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
This is the word of the Lord. Now, I can really um, go line by line, and there's so much in this text, and we'll do so in the weeks to come. But, you know, I'm going to come back to this text in a moment. We'll spend some time diving into this passage as we end later. I will just like to say, I have many pages, and if I don't get through those pages, I'm just going to chop it in half, and we're going to carry on next week. Sounds good? Right. <clears throat> Thank you, Andre, for your mercy and your kindness. Um, now, as we read this text, right, we must understand that the actions of the disciples, this community that we read about, uh, the way they acted, the way they lived, it wasn't part of their cultural norm, right? Sometimes when you read passages, it's like, we're like yeah, maybe like, they all lived that way. You know, maybe it's like a thing they, do, they did in their time. Far from it, the very actions of the disciples, the way they lived, that, that, that self-sacrificial posture was subversive, to the culture of the day. It confronted every kind of idolatry in their day and captured the attention of the world in which they lived in. They were a peculiar people. And this is to be the vision that we carry in our hearts even as we approach the subject of community, that this community, the way we do life, ought to be, is to be, has to be something so distinctive, so peculiar, so subversive about the way we do life together that the world will have its attention captured, its hearts and minds captured by the way we do life together. And uh, I'm going to spend some moments talking to you about the rise of the early church community, what has happened since then, and the hope and vision we are to capture for our community in the days to come. For week one of our sermon series, Life Together, I'm speaking to you on the subject of a distinctive community, a distinctive community. Now, I want to start off with a church leadership question for you. Humor me, right? Uh, we read, read Acts chapter 2, and we know that uh, that event, you know, and that, that passage of scripture was post-day of Pentecost. How many of you are familiar with the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Right, fire came down upon them. They spoke in other tongues. A bunch of people got saved. The power of God, the glory of God, the hand of God was upon them, right, even as they gathered in unity and prayed and sought for the Spirit of God. And further down in Acts chapter 2, we read of this amazing vision of what a community can be. Now, if you are a church leader, a church pastor, and maybe somewhere later in the service, the glory of God, the fire of God, the hand of God comes upon our community in such a sovereign way. We begin to see signs, wonders, miracles, the glory of God so evident, so real before our very eyes, right? We see these things. What in your hypothetical church leadership position would you do? as you experience these things, right? Some kind of obvious or some kind of very natural things to do would be we might do more services. We might go like, okay, we need to like have like extended meetings. We need to not just meet on Sunday, but like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We'll just meet all the way. Uh, another very uh, natural step is that, okay, we'll start a training school, a training institute. We train people where we disciple them. And uh, maybe, you know, uh, Pretty early on, we need to correct some false theology, right? In moments like this, right? Well, maybe people start embracing really weird cookie theology and then we need to address it. These are some very natural things, very human things to do uh, even as we experience the power of God. And nothing wrong with these things, but I want, to, I want you to take a moment and notice what that community of people did post-Pentecost, post-experiencing the glory, the power, the fire of God. They took the power of Pentecost and formed small communities 
of Jesus deeply committed to one another and practicing his teachings, practicing his way. The power of Pentecost was translated into tangible communities, living with and loving one another. And that was the the immediate fruit of Pentecost, community, living together, loving one another. Now, we are not unfamiliar with the concept of community, are we, right? We have heard messages on it, talks about the importance of doing life together, sharing needs, and all that good stuff. In fact, this idea of community, like I said earlier, isn't exclusive to the Christian faith, right? Social groups, they are a form of community. Interest groups, activist groups, they are all examples of communities. Online gaming is a kind of community, right? People you don't see. Ultimate Frisbee, if you're into that kind of stuff, it's a kind of community, right? F45, Wee Bar, CrossFit, it's a kind of community slash cult. Uh, if that is your jive as well. I am a cult participant. Um, for now, for now. Yeah, still a work in progress. Uh, but we are not strangers to this idea of community, right? We hear it really often, not just in church, but in the world we live in. This idea of community, coming together, doing life, uh, common interests, uh, experiencing chemistry, connectivity, this idea of community is very uh, you know, palatable and we, we hear it often in our day and age. But uh, I would like to make an observation, right, that in this age that is marked with hypermobility, right, you know, you can travel, you can travel the world, you know, in the day, right, in the past, maybe like 1,000, 1,500 years ago, if you stay in Sengkang, I'll probably never ever meet you in your life because it like takes so long to travel, this kind of thing. But today, it's an age marked with hypermobility, right? We have all these access to different transportation systems, and we are the, more, the most connected we've ever been in all of human history, right? This idea of hypermobility, but not just that accessibility, right? It's so easy to stay connected with people, right? In the back in the day, from what I understand, long-distance relationship looks like writing letters. Uh, but, you know, when Amy and I did long-distance, we had Skype, we had FaceTime. And so that was... Way easier than writing letters. I don't know how many of you have done the letter thing. But in an age marked with hypermobility and accessibility, we have way more community and uh, way more connectivity and also way more options for community than that, that we ever have in human history. It's in this day, right, that uh, many will note that we are experiencing some of the highest levels of professed loneliness there ever has been in human history, right? You know, I have about 1,600 friends on Facebook. I'm not showing off. I'm sure many of you have more than that. About 1,600 friends on, on Facebook. And uh, an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar, he and other researchers found that on average, people have the capacity to only stay connected with 150 people. It's something to do with like, the way your brain is wired and stuff like that. And so you have capacity to only stay connected with 150 people. And so I have like 1,600 friends on Facebook. That means I have like 10 times the supply than I actually need. And if you factor in like my introvertedness and overall hatred for parties and large gatherings, I have 20 <laughs> times the supply I need, right? I don't know, maybe you're wired that way. Yet with all that connectivity and options, statistics show that we are perhaps the generation most plagued by a deep sense of loneliness, right? Studies show that uh, we are living in what is described as a loneliness epidemic, that is increasingly viewed as a public health crisis. In the latest mental health study uh, on Singapore, it says that one in seven Singaporeans would have struggled with some form of mental disorder in their lives. Uh, now, you don't have to be a researcher or doctor to know that those who struggle with mental health, it's, it's often a lonely journey. And loneliness uh, further exacerbates the condition as well. When she was in... Uh, 
When she was Prime Minister, Theresa May uh, of the United Kingdom appointed a minister for loneliness. And this appointment follows a series of alarming reports about the prevalence of loneliness among elderly people. Recently, the problem has expanded to include even young people. Research shows that uh, loneliness is a better indicator of early death than smoking, obesity, and excessive drinking. Loneliness, I said, increases the likelihood of mortality by 26%. And so all that to say, Britney Spears had it right when she said, my loneliness is killing me. <laughs> she had it right. Good theology. Uh, and, uh, um, but the music of our day does reflect the condition of soul, doesn't it, right? The Backstreet Boys asked the philosophical question, show me the meaning of being lonely, right? <laughs> Whitney asked the emotional question, where do broken hearts go? And for people more in my era, Mr. Akon with uh, Mr. Lonely. And so that's what I listen to and girls don't want me. But... Uh, such an emo song. <laughs> Mother Teresa calls loneliness the leprosy of the modern world. Wow. One writer calls it the greatest irony of the 21st century, the rise of loneliness in a world that's more connected than ever. Now, if the solution is not more connectivity, more options, more mobility, then what is? What is the antidote, the medicine tool? the disease that is loneliness that is so prevalent in our culture today. And it's with that that we look at scripture, Psalm 68. It says this, God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. It's God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He sets the lonely in families. Now, I'm going to take a few moments you know, to unpack this vision, this idea of the church community as a family. The church community as a family. Now, we know that there are communities in the world, but we don't just want to be a community, as Pastor Janice said. We don't just want to be a community. We want to be a community. And that's the idea, right? You know, to be distinct, to be well-differentiated, to be compelling as a people, to be community. <laughs> I even wrote it in my text, community. Anyway, uh, I would like to suggest a big part of the equation of becoming community is rediscovering and understanding our call to be a family. Now, this idea of a church community as a family, like we, we heard Con say, we're not just service attend, we're a family that you belong to. This idea of family, at first it seems sappy, it seems like very PG, it seems like even sentimental, right? It's like, oh, la-di-da, very family, right? But I argue that this was actually Jesus' most radical idea that actually got him killed. And it was radical in the first century, and it's even more so radical in the 21st century. Are you okay if I give you a bit of cultural context? Not that you have a choice. Uh, but I don't have time to get into all that. I'm just going to go through this part really quickly, and uh, we'll land the plane shortly. But uh, there's a book uh, that's titled When the Church Was a Family uh, by an uh, author named Joseph Hellerman. Highly recommend that book. Uh, such an emo title, right? Such, oh, doesn't it cut deep when the church was a family? And so if you're interested in the subject, uh, I encourage you to pick up that book. I think that would be really helpful for you. Now, uh, anthropologists would describe the first century uh, the environment, the culture that Jesus grew up in uh, as uh, something called a strong group society. Now, this is as opposed to a weak group society or collectivism as opposed to individualism. Now, cultural anthropologist uh, Bruce Molina describes a strong group society as such. Can I have my slide? 
He says this, what this means is first of all that the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. Now, this is the kind of society, environment, and culture that Jesus grew up in. This is like heresy in our modern world, right? What happened to like, you do you, boo, just be me. <laughs> like, do whatever you want, you know? But this is the kind of environment and culture that Jesus was raised and where he raised his disciples as well. Now, an example of a strong group society would be like Arabic culture, African culture, and all that stuff. For persons in the ancient world, particularly in the ancient Near East, right, marriage took a backseat priority to add another more important relationship, the bond between blood brothers and sisters. Now, the bond between blood brothers and sisters was viewed as a stronger bond, a bond that you prioritize even over your marriage. Now, this was the culture of the day. Marriages in traditional societies like the New Testament are almost exclusively contracted to enhance the social standing of the respective families involved. Very little consideration is given to the relational satisfaction of a couple. The family has the first and final word in any discussion about who marries who in strong group societies. While marriage was important for those reasons, the closest same-generation family relationship was not the one between husband and wife. It was the bond between siblings. Think of the story of Mark Anthony and Octavia. I don't know whether you're familiar with Roman history, but Octavia left Mark Anthony's side. Uh, there were letters that, that dictated how much she loved Mark Anthony and how she hesitated leaving his side, but she eventually left his side and returned to her brother's side uh, in the midst of a war. The following is a basic summary of our ancient relational priorities. Uh, can I have my slide up? Uh, in the New Testament world, uh, in the New Testament world, yep, there we go. New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. In the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his family. And in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was the bond between siblings. I'm getting somewhere with this. All this, all this to say, the term brother, if you're familiar with scripture, meant immeasurably more to the strong group authors of the Bible than the word means to you and me. It was their most important, treasured family relationship. Sub bro meant a lot more in that day. (laughs) Meant a lot more. When you address someone as brother, you're essentially saying that you, I value you, that you are my closest born relationship that I deeply prioritize. Now, it's with that cultural context in mind that we look at scripture in Mark chapter 3. Another familiar passage of scripture, it says this, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus then replies, Who are my my mother and brothers? Rhetorical question he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. Now, this would be his closest disciples. He looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He looks at his disciples. He says, Here are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. 
This is my family. Jesus calls his disciples, brothers, sisters, his family. Or for some of you, brethren, and whatever the female equivalent of brethren is, sistren. <laughs> now, this term, right, of brothers and sisters referring to his disciples, I'm sorry for making you laugh, it's serious. Um, <laughs> This term, right, of family, of brothers and sisters, was not just used by Jesus, but you used by all the writers of the New Testament, right? The word there in Greek is adolphoi, and it's used a staggering 342 times in the New Testament. By way of contrast, the word Christian only occurs three times. 342 times when talking about the church, its community, disciples, the writers of the New Testament refers to them as brothers and sisters. Now, this should paint a picture of what kind of community Jesus and, and writers of New Testaments have in mind. It's a community that looks like a family, bearing in mind that cultural context, that family was the closest, treasured, born, and it's a relationship that you deeply prioritize. And that is also how we are taught in Scripture to view each other as brothers, as sisters as fellow brethren in Christ in the family. It isn't your casual sub-bro. This language suggests a deep sense of commitment to one another. And we see this imagery of family, brothers, sisters, household, consistent all through the New Testament. Let me look up the next slide. Brothers, sisters, we read that verse earlier, Mark chapter 3, uh, the Lord's Prayer, Mark, Matthew chapter 6. It goes, our Father in heaven. Jesus didn't go like pray to my, my Father. He taught his disciples to pray, our Father. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about salvation as being and likened to being adopted into a family. Uh, in 1 Timothy, the church was referred to as a household, as the house of God. And in the following verses, no, these are all verses that dictate, that depict what the early church was like. The early church regularly met in homes. In homes. Now, it will be utterly inconceivable for the early church to look at the way we're gathered now and for them to think that this is a church. Like you have one guy, monologue, for the most part you are non-participative and you're just all looking at me. <laughs> this picture, if you were to take it and bring it to the first century context, none of them would say that this is a church. The early church met in homes. In homes around the table was where they prayed, fellowship, broke bread and drank from the cup. Communion as practiced in the early church was not just a wafer and a cup of juice, but uh, it was a full meal. Full meal. Now, some of you are going to ask me for a buffet next month, but hey, give me a budget. But uh, the early church fathers called this act of communion the love feast or the agape feast. It was a full meal. It was where they gathered around the table, where they fellowship, where they talked about life, where they prayed for one another and remembered Christ's sacrifice on the cross for them. I think of that, that brilliant Max Lucado line where he says, long before the, ch the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchen tables and dining tables kitchens and dining tables. So how did we devolve from being a family-based community to what I would describe as an audience-based community? Whether you choose belief in it or not, you're an audience right now. You can tell a lot about uh, a person's or an organizational's, organization's goals and philosophies and our priorities based on uh, layout and uh, I will go, even go further to say architecture, right? You know, you know that we have a high priority for our kids and our kids' ministry. And so we create a lot of space, like our crash. It's pretty sizable. You know, we have a bunch of room down at level five, classrooms, 
albeit you know, it's pretty full now, but uh, we intentionally created all these spaces because we have a value for kids, right? We created a foyer space because we don't just value you, you coming to church, sharing a word, and then leaving, but we value that time of interaction where you actually get to connect and share life. And so we have a foyer space, right? Because that's prime seating. We can turn that into more seats and accommodate more people. But because we have a priority, we, we have a goal and a value for interaction, and actual community. That's why we created a foyer space. And so you can tell a lot about a person's uh, goals, philosophies, and priorities, and also an organization's goals, philosophies, and priorities by the way they lay out certain places, right? Like if you come to our house, you know, we have a dining table that sits eight. We have a high bar table that can sit 10. We have a couch that can fit our entire life group. We have, we have a bunch of sitting space. And, whether, and you might not know it, but in that house, it's just me and Amy. We have two butts. And so... We have like sitting to, that can accommodate like half a platoon. Why do we have all those sitting, right? Because we have a priority for hosting, for hospitality, for invitation, for people to come and experience uh, our home and, and us and our hospitality. And so that's why we on purpose designed the house to accommodate lots of people. And so we have a priority in that. So you can tell what our priorities are by the way we lay out certain things. Now, for the early church, right, we see them meeting in homes, right? Right, uh, if you were to glance at those sets of scriptures, you will see that early church was primarily a home-based experience. Where the center of the gathering was, the table where they would sit, around the table where they would share life, where they would eat together, where they would pray and remember Christ's work on the cross. And so I have a picture, and this is a, a really old mural of the early church. And this is super ancient. I forgot where, how old this is, but you can see you know, that that dark piece of log thing that's kind of like a table, and people were sitting around, and they, were, they looked like they were eating, drinking, and communing, and talking to one another. And this was the picture of the early church. Not one guy standing in front, and the rest of the people watching, but they were sitting, they were seated around the table, communing, fellowshipping, interacting. Now, this was the early church. Now, after the legalization of Christianity uh, under the Roman Empire, Emperor Constantine in the 4th century, uh, many people started professing faith in Christ. And so they, there was this huge influx of Christians. And so they started to build buildings for people to have church. And so uh, you have many cathedrals that were built and commissioned in that day. Think of the Basilica, Notre Dame. And uh, these were big buildings, really beautiful buildings. I don't know whether you've been to a cathedral before, but it's huge, massive buildings, really beautiful architecture, design, the stained glass, and all that kind of stuff. And you will take an aerial shot of the cathedral. It's always be almost, uh, almost be always shaped uh, in a cross. Really, really beautiful, beautiful buildings. Now, um, if you've never been to a cathedral before, if you walk in right in the middle, at the center of the cathedral would be the altar. And now this is where they practice the sacraments. And this, over time, uh, transited uh, the experience of communion as a feast into just a bite of bread and a drink of a cup. This was where they, uh, over time, deinstitutionalized this idea of a love feast, and this is how we get our modern approach to communion today. And so cathedrals were built after the legalization of Christianity. The altar was the center of the church experience instead of the table. Instead of a communal experience, it over time, became a service, a mass that you attend. That's when the meal devolved into the mass. Now, um, then in the 16th century, after what we know uh, as the Protestant Reformation, the church uh, you know, made strides to return to the Bible, 
the teaching of the Bible. We want to know what the Word of God says. Now, this uh, time was before there were books uh, in print, uh, a lot of books in print, before everyone had access to Bibles. This was before like the app, the podcast, before like live stream, before all of that, right? And so if you wanted in that day to hear the Word of God being preached, someone interpret the Bible to you, you would show up to church, right? Today, we have many options, right? Many options for you to hear the Word of God. But in that day, you would show up to a church. Now, it was then that uh, these churches, built church buildings were redesigned uh, to look differently, right? If you've been to a cathedral, right, you'll know that it's super high up. The acoustics are not the most optimum for you to hear stuff, right? Sound bounces all over the walls, right? And so it's not really optimum if you want to hear someone talking. And so the churches were redesigned to kind of like a rectangular box kind of a thing. I have a picture. And the center of the church uh, had this elevated pulpit. And this was where the speaker would stand and he would talk and everyone would look at the speaker. His sound would travel well uh, through the pews and everyone would be able to hear the pastor talking. And this is when uh, the church moved from having the altar as a center to having the pulpit as a center. Right? And this was in the 16th century. Tracking me? Taking you somewhere. Fascinating? Thanks, three of you. Well, uh, now, in recent time, right, um, uh, with how music is playing such a big role in our church service and church experience, right? So before that, you had like the pipe organs, but these days we have a full band. And this was a really new development if you actually study the entirety of church history, like this idea of having a band play in the middle of church service is a really new idea. And we get this whole like band music thing from uh, the Jesus People movement is when these hippie musicians started getting saved that uh, this idea of like, you know, music, rock music uh, uh, began to be a mainstay in many churches, right? And so we have these big bands. And so over time, right, the church moved from having the pulpit as the center, as the focal point of the church experience, to having the stage as the center, the focal point of the church experience. And so you have these massive arenas, right? And you can tell the seats are tiered, right? And so this, are, this, is, this is by way of uh, you being able to see the band, See the speaker, right? Uh, next slide. Bigger one. Yeah, you know, so it's tiered down. The stage is the center, is the main focal point. Everyone will be able to see the stage, hear the music, see the band play. Right? And so this is a church, right? But in many ways, on a functional level, right, it's built more like a theater, right? It's built more uh, as a way for you to experience, as a way for you to, uh, you know, to be a spectator, right? To watch the performance, Right, this is its function. Right, sound will be able to travel. You'll be able to see everything. Now, track me. Much of what the develop, the development of the church through time will be transited from the mill to the altar to the pulpit and all the stage. Much of that de- of that development is good. Right, you know, I think there is a certain elements of uh, progression there. I think we are progressing. You know, I think there are good things that. Uh, have, have, uh, that church has embraced over time. But I would argue that in our progress, we have lost appreciation and value from some of the fundamental things that makes us followers of Jesus. Right? As the church progressed from the home right, to a more to a stage-focused, theater kind of style church, we've seen the church grow from a family to an audience. Right, where we participate 
back in the day, in, as we sit in the table, as we commune as the family of God, where everyone shared, everyone participated, right, around the table, where everyone is seen, to what we have as a church today, right, where all of you are looking at me right now, and I'm the only one speaking, and you're not saying anything, right? This, I, this, this kind of like uh, idea of like being a spectator, or being an audience, right? We've seen the church move from being a family to being an audience. Now, <clears throat> I have to preface what I'm saying. I'm not saying that what we're doing here is pointless and we should all go home and not do church this way, right? And, and you know, there's tremendous power and value in gathering in a manner like this, and I'll talk about it one day, you know, where we gather to, together like this in a crop, corporate manner. There's so, so much power uh, and breakthrough that's possible even as we come together united in this uh, measure. But uh, I'll, I'll, go for, I'll go to say this, that... This experience doesn't, it doesn't uh, take the place of that experience. The stage doesn't take the, exp- the place of the table. We need that communal family experience in order to really live into the way of Jesus. Right? Max Lucado, he puts it brilliantly. He says that something holy happens around a dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. In a church auditorium, you will see the back of heads. Around the table, you see the expressions on faces. In the auditorium, one person speaks. Around the table, everyone has a voice. Church services are on the clock. Around the table, there is time to talk. The question uh, I would like to close with is this. How do we become a family-based community. How do we become a family-based community? Now, I have three points, but I won't be able to get to all three of them. I'll do them next week. But uh, the three points are, are this. You know, even as we embrace certain values and recapture the vision of community, of being a family-based community that walks and lives into the way of Jesus, uh, even as we embrace these values, we're actually not just doing that, but we're actually subverting some of the cultural norms that we've come to embrace, even as we live in our day and age. So here are three values that I would like for us to embrace and recapture. And the first one is this, commitment instead of preference. Commitment instead of preference. Now we read the text earlier, it says that they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Now that word modifies and changes everything we see in the text. The intensity and intentionality of their lives set them apart from much of the religious activity of their day because faith for them wasn't just an addition to life. It was a reframing of life itself. The resurrection didn't just change church events for them. It affected the way they lived. Commitment instead of preference. Now I'll go further into this in the weeks to come. And the next value I'd like for us to embrace even as we live in the vision of becoming a family-based community is this, participation instead of spectatorship. Participation instead of spectatorship. Now we observe in the text that the early church community was one that engaged with their faith in practical ways, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer, generosity, worship, and praise. One pastor in observing the decline of the church in its modern age, wrote his own version of the text that we read earlier. He, wrote, he writes this. It's a modern version. Acts chapter 2. There you go. Uh, no, the next one. Yeah, this is his version. He says this. They studied the apostles' teachings when they had time. They went to fellowship when they could fit in. They prayed when they needed something and got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectations for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity but kept all their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings. 
They didn't invite people to, into their homes and rarely reviewed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all of the people, and occasionally someone was randomly saved. <laughs> Such an accurate cultural commentary on our day and age. Ouch. Ouch. In a church as entertainment culture, Instead of seeking to be equipped as disciples of Jesus, we are slowly formed into consumers and critics who give ratings and reviews of a local church's performance. In our culture, where we're taught to rate grab drivers and give food reviews, this is what happens. Where we, where we break out into smaller communities, we assess the viability and the efficiency of the church experience that we had based on the other ones that we've had. And we become consumers and critics spectators instead of active participants in the community in the family of God and to live into the vision of being a family we must participate instead of spectate <clears throat> when was the last time entertainment actually transformed you right when was the last time entertainment actually transformed you right you know think of going to a con- concert like JJ Lin Jay Cho whatever J you have um, for me it's Jesus but uh as you go to a concert, right, perhaps you know, you, 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 you're standing there as an audience and you, you experience the incredible visuals, the swelling emotions, that sense of community around fans, right? You know, you mosh and all that young people stuff. And the power of a group of people with the same style, taste, and aesthetic values, right? It can be really moving, right? A concert experience. I don't know how many have experienced that. But normally, for me, after a concert, right, the number one question that I ask, that people ask, it's typically this, after a concert experience, where are we going to eat? Because you don't, don't normally leave concerts and events like that uh, re-evaluating the kind of person you are and how in deep need of transformation you actually are and what kind of person you're actually becoming. You simply enjoy the experience and move on to the next thing. And when church becomes entertainment, you live lives untransformed. To be transformed, we need yeah. to participate. Yeah. Yeah. And this is my promise to you. If you commit to this church, you won't always have things go your way. Mm-hmm. I won't always perform up to your expectations. You will not have your fancy tickled. You will not be entertained. But if you participate, you will grow. Mm-hmm. And you will be a blessing to others. And others will grow. Yeah. Participate. Don't spectate. Yeah. And the last... Uh, value we are to embrace even as we live in the vision of becoming a family-based community is this, the collective instead of the individual. We explored this concept briefly earlier that the biblical context and Jesus' upbringing was that of a strong group culture. Now, we in our city have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. And this is because, you know, we don't just have a loneliness epidemic. We have an epidemic of narcissism. Now, the word narcissism comes from the Greek mythology of Narcissus, who one day saw his reflection in the water, fell in love with himself, and starved to death because he could not take his eyes off of himself. Can I have my next slide? But we know nothing of narcissism, so this is completely irrelevant. You may be surprised to discover that the expression personal saviour does not occur anywhere in the New Testament. 
in, the, in, his, in his letters, Paul refers to Jesus as our Lord. That is the Lord of God's group. And he only mentions my Lord once in all of his writings. No, I believe that you are to have a personal, vibrant, deep relationship with Jesus where you experience intimacy. But catch this, our faith, though personal, was never meant to be private. It is to have a public outworking. And your faith is lived out in community, in the coming together. You know, I never knew I needed the fruits of the Spirit until I got involved with community. Or rather, I would say, I never knew I did not have the fruits of the Spirit until I got involved in community. There's something about coming together with people that actually makes faith viable, faith needed. Character is needed when you are around people. I'd like to close off this. Mike Brand, uh, he, he writes this amazing book about multiplying missional leaders and he talks about the kind of community that we are to become to. And he, he writes this, a church filled with people like this who are not just living for themselves but spending themselves on behalf of one another is a church with people who have emotional energy to listen without distraction, time to walk others through the mess of addiction or divorce, commitment to invest in teenagers trying to make sense of out of faith and life, and margin to savor and celebrate the things that are often lost in the frenzy of the modern life. A church like this is unlike anything our culture has truly seen. One who commits instead of succumbing to their preferences. One who participates instead of spectating and one who values the collective instead of the individual. I'll close off with a final thought. A few months ago, Amy and I were in a movie theatre, and uh, you know we get there usually typically early because I have an obsessive-convulsive need to be on time for things. Some of you don't, but it's okay. Um, but I like to be on time for things. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sorry. I got a bit playful. But anyway, I, I like to be on time for things, right? It's my worldview. And so I, I, come, I go on time, right? And, and you know when you get there... Early, especially in GEV, right? You have to like watch through all these like trailers and previews, right? Which I actually love, you know. And so we're sitting there, we're sipping our drink, and then uh, a trailer comes up, right? And this is about like, you know, the trailer goes from anywhere from like one to two minutes, and the trailer comes up, and then I lean over to Amy, I was like, wow, you, you gotta watch that. And then you know, another trailer pops up, and then it's Amy turn. Amy leans over, it's like, wow, that's good, we gotta watch that. And the first like 15 minutes of the cinema experience was us leaning to each other, going like, I gotta watch that, I gotta watch that, I gotta watch that, I gotta watch that. Now. There must be some cinematic editing genius that goes into making a movie trailer, right? It's an art form, right? You know, because there are so much films in the world and we have so little time, right? I'm my Korean drama and so I'm deeply committed there already and I was like, I've watch movies some more. We have so little time, right? But there's some like cinematic editing genius that goes in trailers, right? Because in those two-minute clips, right, it has the capacity, it has the ability to reach my heart and make, it go, make me go like, I have to watch that. I have to go to a movie theater, shout out 10 bucks in order to watch that film. That two minutes was so compelling. That preview compelled me to go like, I need to watch the full thing. And in many ways, the church is to be a preview of the kingdom of God. By extension, your life is to be a preview of the church that compels the world to go. Wow. You know, the, the, the world, you know, when, when 
the language of the church is brought up is filled with you know, these ideas of hypocrisy, of legalism and all that kind of stuff, exclusivity, stringent rules, and the world typically goes, I don't want to be a part of that. But what if we as Christ church, through commitment, through participation and valuing the collective good above our own, put the brilliance of Jesus on display in such a way that elicits only one response from a watching world? I have to be a part of that. How does that happen? It's when we abandon our preferences, our opinions, our humanness, desire to flee, to not commit, and subvert our culture's narrative, and we become the family of God. 